0: As we prepare to hear the Word of God preached, let's, let's go before our great God and, and ask that He would prepare our hearts. But God and Father, we do indeed ask that You would prepare us to hear Your Word, that we would put away our cares, our anxieties, that we would focus our hearts and minds on what your word has to tell us and teach us today. We pray that you would give us that clarity of mind and give us a spirit to hear your truth. And we pray for our pastor. We pray that you would bless uh, the work of his hands as he's prepared uh, for the message this morning. We pray that he would indeed speak boldly your words and your truth. We pray that your message. Would be received by all here today, and that any of us here that do not yet know you as Lord and Savior, that you would call them to faith and repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Well, as you're taking your seat, you turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel you have your Bible with you, you turn to Mark chapter 6. We're right here in the middle of Mark chapter 6, and we've come to, frankly, a very unpleasant passage. We, we confess that all Scripture is profitable. Every word in our Bibles is breathed out by God, it's profitable for us, it is necessary for us to know. And yet we come across passages from time to time which are, we, we actually can step back and say, why is this here? I mean, what what profit is this to us to know such things? Just to, to recap where we've been, because it's important to know where we've been to know how this piece fits into Mark's overall narrative. We, we've, we've known since the very first verse of Mark's gospel that he is eager to, to press upon his readers that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-expected prophet. He is the one on whom all the saints were waiting. And we've seen him thus far as as lord over disease, of casting out demons, of healing the blind, of, of raising the dead, healing the sick. We've seen him display his authority over the wind and waves. And we've noticed over the last couple of weeks in particular that it is his words and works, which are either received with gladness by men or bitterly despised and rejected. There's no other middle, there's no middle position. It is either receiving these things with eagerness, with joy, with faith, or it's cursing and rejection. And bitterness, and so we've had the opportunity through the Word of God, in a sense, to witness with our own ears and eyes the words and works of our Savior, who is nothing other than the Son of God incarnate. And I, and I believe it's it's my chief task; it's every preacher's chief task to open up the Scriptures and not to declare to you my own thoughts and imaginations not to declare what you want to hear, uh, not to declare the the latest trends and fashions and fads in our day, the, the latest philosophies of our world, but opening up a passage of Scripture, studying it, and then declaring to you, what's the main point of this text? What is it that the Spirit of God wants all of us to know from a particular passage of Scripture? And that sounds simple enough, and often it's, very easy in a sense to know what the main idea is, and then it's just a matter of crafting a sermon and, and persuading you that it's the main point. Other times, I find myself scratching my head all week long and saying, I don't know what the, the main point is. Sometimes it's a lot of work to get to the, like we read a text today. We're going to read about the beheading of John the Baptist and the sexual immorality and the sensuality that accompanied that, and the venom and malice of Herodias, the wife of Herod, and and Herod's pride and cowardice and evil that caused the execution of John. And we step back and go, well, what good is this for us to know this? I don't enjoy reading this story. It's not entertainment value, surely. Surely. But what is good here for us to understand? What is it that God wants us to know and to believe and to stand upon? We find a text, a dark text, filled with shameful pride, with lust, with hatred of God's law and his righteousness, and even the violent persecution and execution of the chief messenger of Christ, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now, I think here's where we begin to find how this fits together. We we noticed two weeks ago, Jesus returns to his own hometown. And there we saw him rejected in his own hometown. I mean, the people that he literally grew up with, his own friends, neighbors, family members, they they despised him. They, They rejected him in unbelief. And, and we beheld that, and we, even our Savior was astonished at, his un, at their unbelief. And yet, if we're honest, we look at that and say, yes, it's disappointing, it's distressing for those people, but frankly, for the cause of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel overall, what difference does it make? I mean, nowhere people from a nowhere town rejecting the gospel, who cares? But what about? What about when the gospel is rejected and vilified at the highest reaches of power? What about when our Savior and those who follow him are maligned and persecuted and even executed at the highest reaches of human authority? What do we do then? It's one thing to see common, ordinary unbelief. That doesn't distress us that much, does it? But when we see unbelief and its effects in high places, does that not cause us a degree of anxiety, fear, worry, doubt? The point of our passage today is to show to us unbelief, whether it's small or obscure, whether it's prominent or powerful, poses no ultimate threat to the proclamation and revelation of the kingdom of God. And saints, oh, that God would, would impress this, this this fact upon our minds today. That whether unbelief comes in powerful and prominent places or, uh, or obscure, small, out-of-the-way places, either way, it is no threat to the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is going to be revealed no matter what. One commentator makes this observation, and I think this is a helpful way to frame this text. The theological plan in the first two stories of this section of the gospel is to show how the twin powers of unbelief in Nazareth and worldly power with Herod resist the kingdom that comes in Jesus and in John. And yet we could add to that. But neither one, whether small and obscure or high and powerful, thwarted the revelation of the kingdom. I'm going to divide the, look at this, the scriptures, our text today. I'm going to be looking at verses 14 through 29. Verses 14 through 29, I'll read it in a moment. But the outline is really simple. I'm really ma- going to make two, two main observations and then some application. One, the apparent triumph of sin and evil. I mean, we can't help but see this. It it appears that evil men and women have been successful in their evil plots. It appears successful. But then in the last place, we want to consider the inevitable victory of the kingdom. The inevitable victory of the kingdom and the son of the living God. So let's hear together the word of God. The title of today's sermon is Powerful unbelief. Powerful unbelief. Picking up in verse 14 of chapter 6 of Mark's gospel, this is the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John, And wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him into the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice in the first place, the inevitable uh, angle that we have to consider is the apparent triumph of sin and evil. It, it seems as if wickedness has prevailed. See, John is in prison for the the, the exclusive reason that he preached the Word of God. And this Word of God was rejected by Herod Antipas, who is the son, by the way, of Herod the Great. So the the Herod that we see here, Mark describes him as King Herod. He was not technically a king, although he aspired to be, so Mark may be using this title somewhat ironically. He was a tetrarch. He was one of four rulers, regional rulers, that Rome had established, and he is, as I said, the the son of Herod the Great. He is married to a woman named Herodias. And we're going to see that their relationship, they are married together, but it is an unlawful union. It is unlawful because it is both adulterous and incestuous. And their their hatred, especially the hatred that Herodias had of John, leads directly to his death. And this is all done against the backdrop of being told that Herod is aware of the words and works of Jesus. So much is his awareness that his own conscience now becomes grieved and provoked because he recognizes the things that he's hearing, the things that he's learning about the words and works of Jesus have no human, no natural, no earthly explanation. So Herod is grasping, and his own conscience accuses him. And somebody, others suggest that maybe this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And and Herod's conscience seizes on that and says, that's what it is. He's come back to haunt me. He's come back raised from the dead to seek vengeance upon me for my own unjust actions. And then Mark sort of takes us behind the scenes and shows us what has happened, what has led up to this moment. Herod Antipas wanted to be a king above all else. He was an ambitious man, ruthless in his ambition. Herod the Tetrarch fancied himself a great ruler, but but in point of fact, he was a weak man. He was a cowardly man. He was a, a, a sneaky man. And he was ruled by his own passions. He was ruled by his own paranoia. He was ruled by his own wicked wife. You know, in my own experience, the, the very worst kind of, of ruler, the very worst kind of leader is the one who is both evil and unpredictable. The one who's both evil and unpredictable. You know, evil that's predictable, you can work with. You know where the landmines are. You can kind of work around that. I, I once worked for a man who was not a good man. Um, I've worked for some that were that were poor leaders, but you could adjust and work around them because they were predictable. You knew what they were going to do. But I worked for one that was not especially wicked in an outward moral sense, but he was conniving. He was self-centered, and, but he was, he was a church going man. He claimed to be a Christian, but he was, he was utterly unpredictable. He was a loose cannon. Even our customers didn't want to be around him because we never knew what was coming out of his mouth next or what he was going to do. In many ways, he was worse than a wicked man because no one knew what was going to come next. With with Herod the Tetrarch, you have the worst-case scenario. You, you, You have a man who is morally wicked, and he's unpredictable. He had power and authority, and you never knew what he was going to do next. In fact, his entire family, the Herodians, were infamous for their immorality. They were infamous for their immorality. Now, one commentator kind of lays it out like this, and, I, and I, you almost need a big whiteboard here to sketch this out because it's hard to keep track in our minds. But, but Herodias, who is Herod's present wife, unlawful, but she's his present wife, she was the daughter of a man named Aristobulus. He was a son of Herod the Great. Well, her current husband is also a son of Herod the Great. She had married her half-uncle, her father's half-brother, Herod Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great by Miriam II. And then to this Herod Philip, she bore a daughter. And the Gospel writers simply refer to her as the daughter of Herodias. Now, the the Jewish historian Josephus helps kind of fill in the gaps. Her name was, was Salome or Salome. Now, at a later time, this same daughter was going to marry her half-uncle, Philip the Tetrarch, thereby becoming both the sister-in-law and aunt of her own mother. Keeping track? It's not a good situation. What was Thanksgiving like in in this house? They didn't have that. Now, Herod Antipas, on one of the occasional visits to his brother, Herod Philip, becomes infatuated with Herodias. And it was mutual. So the two hatch hatch a plot to separate from their current marriage partners, unlawfully, Herodias from Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas from his wife, who was the daughter of Aretas, the king of the Nabataean Arabs. And they married each other, thus beginning an adulterous, and incestuous relationship. Now, why is this here? Why is this here? I mean, it, it, it's not for entertainment purposes. This whole sordid tale is not to, to entertain us. Hollywood would love such a story, and and frankly, we don't have to go very far to find real-life examples of the kind of wickedness and immorality described here. Maybe not the precise circumstances, but the same motives of men's hearts. And Mark gives us this story, again, not to entertain us, but to, to, to illustrate that no matter how wicked, no matter how determined, or no matter how powerful the enemies of the kingdom are, they're not going to triumph. So it, it's, it's almost in a sense that Mark gives to us this story, like, I'll just give you a really, 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 really bad example of someone who is thoroughly wicked, unpredictable, conniving, powerful, ambitious, and they took their best shot. And the kingdom of God didn't even flinch. The plans and purposes of God were not set back at all. The ultimate question is not who is Herod? It's not even, the question It's not even, what about John the Baptist? The ultimate question is, who is this Christ? And that's a question that Herod apparently had wrestled with a little bit, and he dabbled in it, he kind of liked hearing John, but he wouldn't believe. And his unbelief has tragic consequences. Now, to understand better what Mark's purpose is in telling the story, let's remember that Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. And specifically, we saw these kingdom parables that Jesus told and how Mark recorded these, that, that there was always one of two responses to the teaching of Jesus. There was always either belief or unbelief. There was a, an embrace of Jesus and his gospel or there was a rejection of it. And so Mark is still sort of helping us to wrestle through with this question, why is it that the gospel is embraced by some? Why is it that some eagerly hear the gospel and believe it and others reject it and sometimes bitterly, angrily? See, Herod fancied himself a king and a mighty ruler, but in the face of the Messiah, nothing. But a worm. He's no different from any other man, any other woman who rejects the kingdom of God. And the kingdom is rejected by both small and great. By both ordinary men and extraordinary rulers. And in either case, what should be the thoughts, what should be the mindset of God's people? We are undisturbed by it. It doesn't mean that our hearts don't grieve at unbelief. They ought to. Even our our Savior marveled at unbelief. And yet we should not be troubled by it. We should not be unsettled by it. Even when this unbelief comes at the highest places that we can imagine. The reason for the rejection of the gospel is men's own sinful condition. The kingdom of God was rejected because every time the kingdom of God is rejected is is for one reason. Men love their sin more than they love the light. The light has come into the world and yet they've rejected the light because their deeds are evil. If you quote John 3.16, you have to read a little further, don't you? Because that's exactly what Jesus said. This is the verdict. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. Evil. We see this in vivid display with Herod and with Herodias and with her daughter. Herod feared the people. He feared his loss of reputation with his partygoers. He feared his wife. He feared his own conscience. Feared his, his, his imagination got the best of him. Here is this scene, and Herodias sees this as an opportunity. Herod is throwing a birthday party for himself, and he's got all of the dignitaries, all of his nobles, all of his military commanders, all the leading men of Galilee, and they were feasting, no doubt drinking, reveling together, and they would have had a, a, a string of women coming in, various kinds of entertainment, including women coming in with sensual dancing. And Herodias sent her own daughter to entertain these men. And she was good at it. So much so... The crowd loved it, and as a result, Herod was very pleased. So then he makes this rash, no doubt, drunken promise. You almost hear his words being slurred as he says, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, I'll give to you. What do you want? And the daughter recognizes her mom was up to something, so she goes back to mom. What should I ask for? And notice... Herodias doesn't hesitate. The head of John the Baptist. has already told us that Herodias had a grudge against John. This wasn't her first time to be angry. She, she has stewed over one thing. John the Baptist dared to tell her and her husband that they were in sin. That they were rebelling against God himself. And her response was, how dare he tell me who I can love? How dare God tell me who I can and cannot love? Does that sound familiar? And John had preached the law of God. He had preached the seventh commandment to them. You shall not commit adultery. And the text tells us, verse 18, John had been saying to Herod. This wasn't a one-time passing remark. John had made this the subject of his discourse with Herod repeatedly. Herod, repent. You are in an unlawful marriage. It is incestuous. It is adulterous. Your brother is still alive and you've taken his wife. God will condemn you. God will judge you. God will punish you if you do not repent. And what was Herodias' response? Plot to kill the messenger. Herod feared the people rather than God. He feared the loss of his reputation with these noble men around him he chose to live by his rash words rather than taking responsibility for them and saying, listen, I told you half my kingdom. That had nothing to do with taking a man's life. I will give you whatever thing you want. He should have said. But instead he kowtowed to this young woman and to her mother and ordered the execution of John. But here's something that's important for us to recognize here. Herod's sin, in many ways, is our sin. The root of his depravity exists in all of us, sinner and saint alike. We looked this morning in Sunday school, the doctrine of God's providence, and how God is pleased to use even the sin and the remaining corruption of his people to accomplish his good. Herodias, in some sense, is all of us. The root of her sin lies within each of us. She was harboring a bitter grudge. She was scheming and manipulating. She was pursuing her own murderous thoughts outwardly and actively. And you may think to yourself, no way. I could never do, I would never do what Herod did or what Herodias did. He was a mighty sinner. I would never do things like that. What a wicked woman. I would never be like that. Careful. <laughs> Word of God's very clear. Sin dwells within each of us. Our Lord Jesus said, have you been angry with your brother in your heart? You've broken the sixth commandment. You have a murderous intent lying within you. Sure, it may not have, by God's grace, may not have given birth to the full measure of, of murderous sin. But the impulse is there. The moment we think we are not capable of this particular sin or that particular sin, that's the very moment we open ourselves up to the deception of the enemy, is it not? And our pride to say, I would never do that. Herod and Herodias ought to remind us of the sinfulness of sin. Sin is far more wicked, far more evil, far more grievous than we can wrap our minds around, even those what Jerry Bridges called acceptable sins. Those things that we think we can manage and keep as a pet. Herod was was, for Herod, the remedy to his sin was right there. Here is John the Baptist with the message of the kingdom. It was right there in front of him. And we're told that Herod actually liked hearing John. He knew he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe, particularly from his own wife. And when he heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Yet Herodias maintained a grudge against him. She wanted to put him to death. And so the question is, what about you today? Do you you receive the word gladly and, and yet not obey it? Are you eager to hear the Word of God and yet I don't want it pressed in deep into me so that I have to obey what it says and be changed by it, be conformed to it? Do you fear the message of God knowing it is a righteous and holy message and yet you don't do anything with it? You're like the man that James described who sees himself in the mirror and he walks away and forgets what he saw. Do, do you not reject Christ when he draws near to you this morning? He is as near to you as the message of the gospel was near to Herod. It was right there for the taking, and yet he wouldn't believe it. Herod's murder of John didn't just happen in a vacuum. It didn't just spontaneously happen. He didn't go from an upright, faithful man to completely evil overnight. It was a series of sins and compromises that one by one by one led to murder following adultery. He followed a pattern of rejecting the Word of God, little By little, bit by bit, he rejected the word of God. He refused to humble himself before his God. And God left him to his own sin. Big sins often follow small ones, don't they? Scandal is grown in the soil of small compromises. Brothers and sisters, we should not take sin lightly. As we sang this morning, Do you suppose that sin, you take it lightly? Here, behold our Savior. Look upon Him, and there you can estimate your guilt correctly. Turn away today. Flee to the Lord Jesus for rescue, for hope. But we're not left without hope. Even even in the midst of this sordid tale, even in the midst of this, um, frankly, depressing kind of narrative, We're not left without hope. I mean, look back at how this section began in verse 14. King Herod heard. What did he hear? He heard the fame of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard of the words and the works of Jesus. And this takes us to the second point in the sermon, the inevitable victory of King Jesus. The background that we receive here from Mark about the death of John the Baptist is just to help put it in context for us, what has Herod heard and how does Herod respond? Herod hears of the words and works of Jesus and thinks to himself, I don't know of any explanation for this. Here he sits here, a man who aspires to be king, a man with true power and authority, and he hears about what's going on I don't have an explanation for this. I have no natural explanation. Historians tell us that very likely, Herod was of the party of the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in resurrection. But Herod's challenged with that belief now, isn't he? And his own conscience, his own superstition, now has him convinced, I mean, utterly convinced, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and his conscience is tormented within him. That is evidence that the kingdom of God is still going forth. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. Others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Notice, he doesn't say, John, whom Herodias tricked me into beheading. His own conscience accuses him and tells him, this is on me. I did this. I'm the one who could have stopped it. I'm the only one with authority to order an execution like The only reason this tragic story is recorded here in this context of Mark is telling us that the words and works of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was rejected by common men in a common place in his own hometown, that same one, his words and works have reached the highest power in Israel. Despite the death of John the Baptist, we don't know exactly how long before this. But even though John's head was delivered on a platter by a wicked men, to wicked women, the kingdom of God continues to be declared. The king continues to be proclaimed in his name and his fame has come to the ears of Herod the Tetrarch. And we've been studying uh, the book of Joshua and our and our family devotions. And it's very fascinating to me as the people cross over, as God leads his people across the Jordan River, and this they send spies over, and they, they meet a harlot named Rahab. And remember what Rahab told them? The fear of your God has already overtaken our people. Then after they marched around the city of Jericho seven times, and they blow the trumpets, and they shout, and the walls fall down, and they go in and devote the city to utter destruction. Moses comments on this, or I'm sorry, Joshua has commented on that the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And over and over and over again, we're told that the enemies of God had heard the name of Yahweh, and they feared. And here we see evidence, even in the highest reaches of human power in Jerusalem at this time. The fame of the true Joshua, the greater Joshua, the final Joshua, has come in their ears. And they're terrified. Herod was terrified. Herodias was terrified. So they saw it. Let's kill the messenger. How do we silence our consciences? We kill the messenger. J.C. Ryle makes the observation, he says, we, f- we see finally in these verses how little reward some of God's best servants receive in this world. An unjust imprisonment and a violent death were the last fruit that John the Baptist reaped in return for his labor. Like Stephen and James and others of whom the world was not worthy, he was called to seal his testimony with his blood. Histories like these are meant to remind us that the true Christian's best things are yet to come. His rest, his crown, his wages, and his reward are all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, he must walk by faith and not by sight, and if he looks for the praise of man, he will be disappointed in this life. Here, in this life, he must sow and labor and fight and endure persecution. And if he expects a great earthly reward, he expects what he will not find. But this life is not all. There is to be a day of retribution. There is a glorious harvest yet to come. Heaven will make amends for all. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Heard the glorious things that God has laid up for all who love him. The value of real religion is not to be measured by the things seen, but the things unseen. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8:18. 8, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4. Now notice how this narration ends. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, meaning heard of the death of John the Baptist, this is John's disciples, not the disciples of Jesus, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And they did so in faith believing this was not the end of the story. Just as Joseph ordered that his bones not be left in Egypt, but be brought up with the, the people 400 years later, he testified in faith that his body would one day be raised. Here, the disciples of John also testify in a like manner, that John's story is not over. His head was separated from his body. His body separated from his soul, but all would be one day reunited at the resurrection of the dead. And here is the hope, ultimate hope, the final hope of the kingdom of God is that Christ will return and make all things new and all will be put in place. The kingdom of God's own Son is here. Powerful men, powerful women will try to stop it. They will resist it. They will make war against it. They will blaspheme its king. But none of those actions will ultimately succeed. That's the point of our text this morning, saints. All the powers of hell are arrayed and lined up against the Lord and against his anointed, and if they do not repent, if they do not surrender to this king, they will be destroyed, they will be punished for eternity, but their efforts will not succeed in stopping the proclamation of the kingdom well i think there's there's a, a significant application for us and for the comfort of our own hearts in our in our days i mean we particularly as we come into an election year, as you see the same headlines that I see, you're troubled by the same sorts of things that I'm troubled by. And we have two choices. We can meditate and fix our eyes upon the sin and the wickedness and the evil that we observe, sadly, even in the highest places in our land. Or we can fix our eyes upon the Son of the living God and the kingdom that he has declared will never perish. What's our perspective? Where is our attention? Where where, where do our spiritual eyes tend to focus? And according to our our flesh and the weakness and the infirmity that remains in us, we're going to fixate on those things of this world, aren't we? That's where our temptation is. And we're, we're tempted to be unsettled, to be anxious, to be fearful. And there may yet be difficult days ahead. John really lost his head. This wasn't a metaphor. He lost his head. He was executed in cold blood. And yet, that wasn't the end of things for John or for the kingdom of God. Let's think about some ways that we can apply and meditate upon the text. Our our key idea here is that whether small and, and, and obscure or powerful and great... unbelief is not a threat to the kingdom of God. Even the worst we can imagine as a product of unbelief is no threat to the kingdom. Notice in the first place, I'm going to give, count up real quick, five points of application. One, beloved, take careful note of the deceitfulness of sin. Take careful note of the deceitfulness of sin. It would be a dangerous position to look upon Herod or to look upon Herodias and find zero common ground with them. It would be dangerous for us to look at them and say, well, I have nothing whatsoever in common. I've never feared man. I've never plotted and schemed. I've never held a grudge. I've never nursed secret wickedness in my heart. I've never nursed and, and, and coddled secret lusts of my flesh. Take careful note of the deceitfulness of sin. Secondly, the law of God needs to be preached. The law of God needs to be preached. Uh, Even among our, you know, kind of reformed or reformed ish world, uh, there has been a movement over the last, I don't know, decade and a half or two decades or so to be gospel driven, gospel, 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 gospel. And that's wonderful unless we neglect the law of God in the process. We cannot, with credibility, offer the true glories of the gospel and the forgiveness therein if people are not truly aware of their sinful condition. And that comes by the law. We find with John the Baptist that he was faithful in the the face of even prison to preach the law of God to Herod. He didn't shrink back. He looked this man in the eye, a man in a high place, a man in authority, and said, you're in sin. God despises what you're doing, and if you do not repent, there are eternal consequences for you. John the Baptist was a faithful messenger of God, willing to call sin what it truly is, an offense against God. It was not merely that Herod was unwise or that that Herod was politically foolish. All those things were true. But Herod's chief problem was that he was at enmity with God. That he was driven by his passions, by his flesh, rather than by loyalty to God. He called out sexual immorality in clear and plain language. He, He declared that it is only God who has the authority to declare what is lawful and what is unlawful with respect to marriage, human sexuality. It was not up to Herod, it was not up to Herodias to determine for themselves what was right and wrong with respect to human sexuality. It was not for anybody else to make such declarations or decisions. God alone has the authority to determine such things. He is the author of the institution of marriage. He is the the lawgiver who regulates all human interactions. And those in high places may hate the law of God, they may hate its messengers, but that doesn't mean that we as his people should shrink back from speaking the truth. We must be bold, we must be clear, we must be unambiguous when asked, whether privately or publicly, we should not be mealy-mouthed about things where God is very clear. God does not stutter or whisper when he speaks about such things. Now, notice also that John was not personally offensive to Herod. John was clear. He was faithful to God's word, but he wasn't personally offensive to Herod. Herod actually liked the guy, which is, I think that's really remarkable, isn't it? There was something in John's own character, both in his words and his character, that Herod appreciated as a man. He said, you know what? This man's got the integrity. He's got the backbone to speak to me in that way. I want to hear him again. That's fascinating to me. You know what? I think that still remains true. Men in high places, powerful men, powerful women, they may, they may spew venom and they may hate what you say, but the man or the woman who stands in integrity, who seeks not to be personally offensive, not to be a jerk, but to simply say, this is true. This is what's true. God has made it true. I didn't make it true. God has made it true. And God and, and over and over and over again, John said, what you're doing is not lawful. You are rebelling against the holy God, and he will condemn you for it. And Herod had a respect. It wasn't belief. I don't want to confuse that, but there was a respect for John, so much so that he, he took measures to protect him. Thirdly, sin always gives birth to more sin. This started with a lust of the flesh and and a sexual immorality of Herod and Herodias, but it doesn't remain small. It doesn't remain there. Just as the seed of God's Word takes root and grows to righteousness, in the same way, the seed of sin if not forsaken, will take root and bear much bitter fruit. This is the law, the scriptures refer to as the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap the corruption of the flesh. Fourthly, sin and evil are equal opportunity employers. Sin and evil are equal opportunity employers. Feminism would have you believe that women are more virtuous or at least not as wicked as men. Women have the capacity for tremendous influence for both good or evil. I ran across some research uh, some months back. In fact, I shared this article with a few of you months ago that there was a Canadian cognitive psychologist, an author named, by the name of Steven Pinker, And he made this claim publicly. He made the claim that, quote, almost all the world's wars and genocide have been instigated by men. Almost all the world's genocides and wars have been instituted by men. You've probably heard something similar, haven't you? That if we could just put women in charge, we would have more peace. There would be less war, less violence, because men are just inherently evil and wicked and violent. Well, researchers at the University of Chicago in the Beckham, becker Friedman Institute for Economics in 2019 published a working paper. And here's what they did. They sought out to answer the question whether or not kings or queens throughout history have started more wars. Interesting question. I mean, do we even have to study that? Isn't it obvious? Well, not so fast. According to the research, they analyzed a selection of mostly European kings and queens who re- reigned between 1480 A.D. and 1913. So, long period of time, right? 193 rulers in 18 countries. And over those 193 reigns, the researchers found, their research found stating that states ruled by queens were 39% more likely to wage war than those ruled by kings. Just studying the historical data. Not only did the team of researchers find that states ruled by queens were more likely to fall into conflict and war than those led by kings, but females were also more likely to gain territory and were attacked more often. Co-author I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Owen Drilla-Dube told the, the, the Times that there's this general stereotype that men are greatly responsible for wars and genocide and that women are natural peacemakers. But, quote, our research turns this stereotype on its head. Well, may Herodias stand in our courtroom today as Exhibit A that women can be just as vicious, just as evil, just as wicked, just as scheming, and just as dark as men. Sin is an equal opportunity employer. The Bible does not flinch as it gives to us examples, case studies of both men and women who are capable of all manner of wicked and evil deeds. I mean, just go back through in your own mind and survey the scriptures. Think about Potiphar's wife false accusation of rape against a just and innocent man. Of course, the most supreme example probably in all the scriptures is Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, who spurred her husband on to greater and greater and greater wickedness. But then on the other hand, we see examples like Naaman's wife, Abigail. Naaman was a horrible man, a wicked man. But David's own testimony is that Abigail is the one who saved David from the guilt of bloodshed because she reasoned with David, and she encouraged him to righteousness rather than evil. So to my sisters, I want to make this specific application. God has given you the capacity as a sister, as a wife, as a mother, daughter to have a tremendous influence for either good or evil you have tremendous capacity and see one of the lies one of the many lies of feminism feminism is that if we order things in a home or we order things in a church the way that god has designed that a woman is powerless and helpless and most of you ladies would laugh at such a prospect because you know you know the kind of influence that you have for either good or for evil. But there's also an exhortation in that to to me, to my brothers. Herod recognized his culpability. He recognized, yes, his wife schemed. Yes, she plotted evil. But he was not a passive stooge in that. He didn't just sign off on it passively. He's the one who gave the order to execute John the Baptist. Ultimately, the guilt laid at his feet, and he knew it, which is why his own conscience tormented him when the news of Christ's words and works came to his ears, and he searched for an explanation, and he convinced himself, John has been raised from the dead, the John that I executed. Lastly, one final point of of application, point of meditation for us, And that the Lord's word will be vindicated when his people are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Even when God's people are persecuted, even when the worst happens and they are executed, when they are killed for righteousness' sake, the word of God is vindicated. His kingdom continues to be revealed. The early Christian apologist Tertullian remarked, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. At no point in history has the kingdom of God faltered. At no point has the kingdom failed to be revealed. John the Baptist lost his head because he faithfully preached the law of God, but even in the face of powerful men and women who opposed him, kingdom didn't falter. It even Herod's own conscience to the very last hour testified against him. It testified to the righteousness and truthfulness of the very word of God that John proclaimed. John's good conduct and his words both vindicated the word of God. Nothing in this world or in the age to come will stop the Lord Jesus Christ from receiving the praise and glory and honor that is due to him. The only question is, will you participate in that worship? Will you vindicate in your own mind, in your own heart, the name, the words, and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you appropriate that to yourself by faith? So, Saints, as we we consider this unpleasant text, remember this chief lesson, unbelief. Whether it's small and insignificant, whether it's obscure and far away or whether it's powerful and prominent and right here in your face, Either way, that unbelief poses no ultimate threat to the proclamation, to the revelation of the kingdom of the living God. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank You. We thank You in the name of Your Son, by the power of Your Spirit revealed in Your Word, that You have revealed Yourself, even even in passages of Scripture that are unpleasant, that are difficult, even when we are forced to ponder things that we would rather not think about, in your faithfulness and in your wisdom, you make these things known to us. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you will help to discover in us unbelief that remains. That we will flee to Christ. That you will increase our faith that we will commit ourselves to the means that you have established for us to improve upon the gifts that you've given to us. To urge one another to love and good works according to your word. To urge one another to faithfulness to you. And for all of us to rest together ultimately in the faithfulness of Christ himself. We ask this in his name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.